a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Yes, I will be shoveling truth and light, fast and furious, because it's what I do. You know, and it's also fun to revel in wrong think. Truth be told, it started out as just kind of a pleasant pastime, almost a hobby, so to speak. Now it's become a necessity. You got to be willing to question that narrative. You got to be willing to push back against it. And where possible, stand up for yourself. I'm glad you're here today. Thanks for joining us. Our program is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. I thought we could start out on kind of a positive note here, seeing as there's, uh, you know, plenty of bad news to go around, and that uh, always seems, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. Well, you know, the best remedy for feeling overwhelmed, which I know a lot of people are feeling, myself included at times, is to simply start counting your blessings. Now, I know, that sounds trite. Well, gee, the house is burning down. Let me count the blessings. I'm warm. Yeah, that'll work. I'm talking about something that requires stepping back for a moment and just reflecting on all the marvelous things that we take for granted every day. This isn't, you know, put on your Pollyanna face and, you know, make the best of it. This is just a a recognition that in spite of all the stuff that's gone crazy, there's a lot of stuff that really is remarkable. And you could probably say, hey, that's a blessing of sorts. Got a great article here. This is actually from January 2nd of 2020. You know, before the craziness. And it's from a writer by the name of Alexander Hammond. I have the privilege of working with him on another program called Moving Forward with Young Voices. He's one of their contributors from the UK. Alexander Hammond has compiled a list of the 20 biggest advances in tech over the last 20 years. And it's just a fun reminder that despite what you're reading in the newspapers or seeing on TV, humans continue to reach new heights of prosperity. Now, again, keep in mind, This was written before the craziness, before COVID, before the lockdowns. But I'm just asking you, let's let's see the positive where there is some positive. So in no particular order, here are 20 of the most significant technological advancements that we've made in the last 20 years. You can probably guess the first one, right? Smartphones. Now, mobile phones existed before the 21st century. But in the past 20 years... I mean, if you really stop and think about what that phone in your pocket does, the capabilities have improved enormously. It was back in June of 2007 that Apple released the iPhone, the first touchscreen smartphone with mass market appeal. Lots of other companies took inspiration from the iPhone. As a consequence, smartphones have become an integral part of day-to-day life for billions of people around the world. In fact, today we take pictures We navigate without maps. That's the big one for me. I can't remember what it was like to actually have to navigate without, you know, something telling me. Now, turn right here. We order food. We play games. We message friends, listen to music. 
all on our smartphones. And as an added bonus, you can actually call people if you need to talk to them. Secondly, flash drives. Now, this is one that I've noticed just because uh, I use a pretty fair amount of computer space in my day-to-day work. First sold by IBM in 2000, the USB flash drive allows you to easily store files or photos or videos with a storage capacity so large that it would have been unfathomable just a few decades ago. Today, a 128-gigabyte flash drive available for less than $20 on Amazon has more than 80,000 times the storage capacity of one of those 1.44-megabyte floppy disks, which was the most popular type of storage disk in the 1990s. And keep in mind, this was written almost two years ago. I've seen terabyte flash drives for, I don't remember what it was, 50, 60 bucks. Unheard of. Incredible. Technological marvel number three, that would be Skype. Launched in August of 2003, Skype transformed the way that people communicate, uh, communicate across borders. Before Skype, calling friends or family abroad cost huge amounts of money. Do you remember what long-distance rates were, right? (laughs) Well, today, speaking to people on the other side of the world or even video calling with them is practically free. And I have to admit, I have kind of a special place in my own heart for Skype. Um, This last year, I was able to contact my biological parents. I was adopted at four days old and um, made the successful attempt to connect with my bio parents and Every Sunday night, my biological dad, Dal, that's his name, he and I get together and and visit. And I mean, we could talk on the phone and it would be fun, but it's absolutely fascinating, at least for me, to to see this guy who I I very clearly resemble and to to get a chance to to have kind of a face-to-face conversation with him. I still haven't met him in person. I'm hoping that's going to happen this fall. But in the meantime, Skype, that's a, that's a pretty good substitute. Number four is Google. We take this one for granted so much. Those who still use it, I've personally graduated to DuckDuckGo, but hey, you know, to each his own. Google's search engine actually premiered in the late 1990s. But the company went public in 2004, leading to its colossal growth and, I presume, its takeover of the free world. Google revolutionized the way that people look for information online. Every hour, there are more than 228 million Google searches. Every hour. Today, Google is part of Alphabet Inc., a company that offers dozens of services like translations, Gmail, Docs, Chrome web browser, and much more. Which brings us to Google Maps. Do you remember this? Back in, tw- in February of 2005, Google launched its uh, mapping service, which changed the way that many people travel. With the app available on virtually all smartphones, Google Maps has made getting lost virtually impossible. Although there were a few hiccups, as I recall, in those early years. and Sometimes people would be like, hey, what's a Swift truck doing way out here in the middle of nowhere? Just following my Google Maps. and Or maybe it's the fact I'm a Swift driver. Sorry, that's, that's not very fair to those who drive for Swift. It's just easy to forget that a couple decades ago, most travel involved sitting down, plotting your route, paper maps. Did you have a, a, a um, an atlas, you know, that you would map it out? Okay, so this is how we go here. And, you know, it was almost, uh, it was almost always a necessity when you were venturing someplace unfamiliar. 
And, of course, once you got into a big city, well, you know, then you had to go with the, all right, this is H10 is where the addresses that we're looking for, and you try to figure out, you know, where that was. Number six, Human Genome Project. In April 2003, scientists successfully sequenced the entire human genome. And though this, through the sequencing of roughly 23,000 genes, that project shed light on a lot of different scientific fields, including disease treatment, human migration, evolution, molecular medicine. Truth be told, the reason I was able to meet my biological parents started with a DNA test. That connected me to my nearest DNA relative, who happened to be my biological dad. That set into motion a whole slew of events that uh, still are playing out. But man, what an incredible ride that's been. Number seven among the 20 biggest advances in tech over the last 20 years. That would be YouTube. In May of 2005, the first video was uploaded to what today is the world's most popular video sharing website. Now, Harvard University lectures on quantum mechanics and favorite TV episodes to how-to tutorials and funny cat videos. Billions of pieces of content can be streamed on YouTube for free. Although I have to note with just a little bit of sadness, <clears throat> YouTube has been one of the big ones to, uh, to censor points of view that fall outside of whatever that 3 by 5 index card of, of uh, acceptable opinion is. That's a bit of a shame. Number eight, graphene. Now, we hear about this talked about, I believe, with the, uh, the vaccine for, for COVID. But in 2004, researchers at University of Manchester became the first scientists to isolate graphene. That is an atom-thin carbon allotrope that can be isolated from graphite. That's the soft, flaky material in your pencil lead. And although humans have been using graphite since the Neolithic era, Isolating graphene was previously impossible, but with its unique conductive, transparent, and flexible properties, graphene has enormous potential to create more efficient solar panels and water filtration systems, even defenses against mosquitoes. Okay, that one has my full attention, because I hate mosquitoes. There's nothing worse than trying to sit there at night sleeping and hearing that little in and out of your ear. Going to come back to Alexander, Hamel, Alexander Hammond's um, 20 biggest advances in tech over the last 20 years. There is also a link in the show notes, which you'll find at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part by LifesavingFood.com. You know the best time to buy food storage? I'll just clue you in on this. When it's available. <laughs> when there's not a panic, when the store shelves are not bare, uh, when, when it's on sale, you know, when, when you can get a good selection for a good price, that's the time to buy it. And the crazy thing is right now is that time. Now, you remember what it was like, you know, back when the lockdowns began in March of 2020? Do you remember that uneasy feeling of seeing the empty store shelves and thinking to yourself, crap, I wish I had been just a little bit faster or I'd stocked up a little bit earlier, wouldn't have to worry about, you know, looking for these kind of things? Well, if you want to avoid that uneasy feeling, I would recommend 
Click on the link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com for lifesavingfood.com. I'm not telling you you have to buy something. I'm going to tell you, look around, though, and see, is there something you can use? Is it time to get serious about getting started on a food storage program? They have all kinds of different packages, different budgets can be accommodated. And best of all, it really does bring peace of mind in knowing you've got something set aside for a rainy day. And you get 10% off your purchase if you mention my name. That's H-Y-D-E, hide as your coupon code at checkout. Back to the article here from Alexander Hammond. This article was written in January of 2020, so this is before all the craziness started. But he's celebrating the 20 biggest advances in tech over the last 20 years. And I have to admit, you know, a lot of these, some of these I kind of growl at a little bit. But you'll see why here in just a minute. But for the most part, yeah, I would say these things have actually made life better in so many ways. Number nine on the list is Bluetooth. While Bluetooth technology was officially unveiled in 1999, It was only in the early 2000s that manufacturers started to adopt Bluetooth for use in computers and mobile phones. Now, today, Bluetooth is featured in a wide range of devices. It's become an integral part of many people's day-to-day lives. And I'm sad to admit, I'm still learning how to use it. My kids often tell me, Dad, just activate the Bluetooth. We'll get this thing going. Okay. They're my tech experts. (laughs) Number 10 is Facebook. See, this is is the growl. Okay. First developed in 2004, Facebook was not the first social media website. Due to its simplicity to use, however, Facebook quickly overtook existing social networking sites like Friendster and MySpace with 2.41 billion active users per month. That's almost a third of the world's population. Facebook has transformed the way billions of people share news and personal experiences with one another. Now, there is a darker side to this, and that is Facebook also has experimented and shown that they can successfully manipulate people's emotions by virtue of algorithms that that, uh, feed only certain stories that either agree or challenge a person's point of view. It's a little bit spooky to think you could be manipulated through social media, but looking at the clampdown on what's able to be shared, how many people are spending time in Facebook jail, I guess it's not that surprising. Number 11 in the biggest uh, tech advances over the last penny, last 20 years, Curiosity, the Mars rover. First launched in November of 2011, Curiosity is looking for signs of habitability on Mars. Now, in 2014, the rover uncovered one of the biggest sp- space discoveries of this millennium when it found water under the surface of the red planet. Curiosity's work could help humans become an interplanetary species in just a few decades' time. Number 12, electric cars. All right, everybody who's driving a Tesla, sit there for a minute and feel smug. All right, electric cars are not exactly a 21st century invention. It wasn't until the 2000s that these vehicles were built on a larger scale. Now, commercially available electric cars like the Tesla Roadster or the Nissan Leaf can be plugged into any electrical socket to charge. And they don't require fossil fuels to run. Well, maybe to generate the electricity, but not to run. Although considered a fad by some, electric cars are becoming ever more popular with more than 1.5 million units sold in 2018. I'm sure that number is even higher today. It brings us to number 13, which is driverless cars. In August 2012, Google announced its automated vehicles had completed over 300,000 miles of driving accident-free. How does your teenager compare? Now, although their self-driving cars are popular at the moment, 
almost all car manufacturers have created or are planning to develop automated cars. Again, something to keep an eye on. And again, kind of a mixed blessing. Maybe that's a good thing, maybe not. Number 14, the Large Hadron Collider, LHC. First run in 2013, this is the world's largest, most powerful particle accelerator. It's also the world's largest single machine. It allows scientists to run experiments on some of the most complex theories in physics. And uh, the most important thing so far that it's found was the Higgs boson particle. Number 15 is the Abiocor Artificial Heart. In 2001, the artificial heart, which was created by the Massachusetts-based company Abiomed, became the first artificial heart to successfully replace a human heart in heart transplant procedures. Now, the crazy thing about this is the Abiocor Artificial Heart powers itself. Yes, like Iron Man. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) Tony Stark may have actually designed it. No, unlike previous artificial hearts, it doesn't need intrusive wires that heighten the likelihood of infection and death. Number 16, this one's one of my favorites, 3D printing. Although 3D printers as we know them today began in the 1980s, the development of cheaper manufacturing methods and open source software contributed to a 3D printing revolution over the past two decades. And today, 3D printers are being used to print spare parts, whole houses, medicines, bionic limbs, even entire human organs and guns. Sorry, but that one makes me especially happy. Cats out of the bag. Sorry, government, but there will be no gun control as long as 3D printers exist. Number 17, Amazon Kindle. In November 2007, Amazon released the Kindle, and since then a plethora of e-readers has changed the way that millions of people read. Thanks to e-readers, people don't need to carry around heavy stacks of books. Independent authors can get their books to an audience of millions of people without having to go through a publisher. Number 18 is stem cell research. Now, previously, the stuff of science fiction, stem cells, in other words, the basic cells that can become almost any type of cell in the body, are being used to grow, among other things, kidney, lung, brain, and heart tissue. And this technology will likely save millions of lives in the coming decades, as it means patients no longer have to wait for donor organs or take harsh medicines to treat their ailments. Number 19, multi-use rockets. In December and in November and December, actually, of 2015, two separate private companies, Blue Origin and SpaceX, successfully landed reusable rockets. And this is commonplace, so much so over the last couple of years, it's almost not even a big deal when they test another one or actually do a successful launch. And I say this as someone who's using Starlink, Elon Musk's uh, SpaceX invention, as my uh, Internet source. Fantastic stuff. Plus, it also cheapens the cost of getting to space and brings commercial space travel just one step closer to reality. And finally, number 20 of the 20 biggest advances in tech over the past 20 years, gene editing. Now, again, this could be good or this could be bad, but in 2012, researchers from Harvard University, University of California at Berkeley, and the Broad Institute each independently discovered that a bacterial immune system known as CRISPR could be used as a gene-editing tool to change an organism's DNA. By cutting out pieces of harmful DNA, gene-editing technology will likely change the future of medicine and could eventually eradicate some major diseases. And hopefully not lead us into a dystopian existence like in the movie Gattaca, which if you haven't watched is probably worth your time. 
So think about the immense technological advances of the last 20 years. And Alexander Hammond says, remember that despite what you may read in the newspapers or see on TV, human beings are continuing to reach new heights of prosperity. Now, I know a lot has happened since he wrote this article, but let's not uh, throw out all the good just for the sake of a few bad things. By and large, we've got some pretty cool stuff going on here. Perhaps a moment to stop and appreciate it would be appropriate. All right, we'll take a quick break. We've got some more great stuff straight ahead. Be sure to check out the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. We'll be back after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. So I'm, I'm trying to look on the bright side. And this is probably more for my own sanity than anybody else's. I actually took some time yesterday to unplug, and and I strongly recommend this to anybody who is feeling just overwhelmed with the, you know, there's there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. Um, I I agree with my friend Eric Mutzos put it this way. He said, you know, normal is gone. We've got to get used to the idea that what was once normal and that comfort of knowing how everything is playing out, that's not a part of life, and it's not going to be for the foreseeable future. You got to get comfortable being, you know, in a state of discomfort and, and, and knowing that normal is just not going to be there for a while. But man, once you unplug, and it doesn't even take that long, it used to take a couple of days to kind of get the world looking normal again. No, no. It takes a matter of hours, but more than anything, it just takes that uh, ability to step back for a minute, breathe, take a couple of deep breaths, and then look around you and, and, and try to see, okay, what's going Right. You'll be surprised. There's a lot more going right than you probably have, have remembered. And I'm just praying that uh, I'm one of the, I'm not one of the sources of, uh, you know, that sense of overwhelmed. Oh my gosh, everything is so much worse than I thought it was. Because my goal is not to, to bring, you know, more fear or more um, sense of helplessness into your life. I saw a quote the other day that I think pretty accurately describes at least what, what I'm attempting to do with this, this program each day. And it says, in life, there are those who will tell you what to think, and then there are those who will teach you how to think. The first type of individual wants power and your dependency. The second type wants to empower you to live independently. That's exactly what I'm shooting for here. So let's look at a little bit more good news. You know, the flip side to the technological advances that make our lives better is the growing technocracy that's been trying to gain control over our lives for this past year and a half. There's a great article here from Thomas L. Knapp that sounds a hopeful note that thanks to COVID-19, that technocracy has actually flowered and failed. He says history is littered with social and political movements, which, while failing to survive as movements, still largely achieved their goals. The Prohibition Party's national conventions could take place in a phone booth these days. But its disastrous single policy proposal was adopted as a constitutional amendment, mutated into the equally disastrous war on drugs, 
and continues to torment the modern marketplace with draconian regulation. Okay, that's a good point. Most socialist parties have either disappeared into the dustbin of history or find themselves reduced to glorified supper clubs featuring loud arguments over whether the Soviet Union was a bureaucratic deformation or a degenerated worker state. But Socialist Party candidate Norman Thompson's 885,000 votes in the 1932 presidential election arguably led to FDR's New Deal and the modern welfare state. He says few people remember or ever learned about the technocracy movement of the 1930s. Now, that movement failed in its formal goal of replacing democratic legislatures with boards of experts to run society, including the economy, according to science. Why does that sound so familiar? But over time, the concept took root in America's regulatory apparatus. Now Thomas L. Knapp reports nearly every aspect of our lives has, for several decades, been subject to scrutiny and oversight by experts. Now, that includes the food we eat, the drugs we take, the cars we drive, the securities we invest in. You name it, there's a government bureau somewhere full of whirring computers and nerds with slide rules figuring out what we may or may not do and in what way we may do it. So while most of us gripe about particular technocratic edicts, few question the premise itself. And he says it's taken just as it's just as it's taken as obvious that the man in the lab coat knows more about airbags and crop yields than the honorable representative from Minnesota. So technocracy took root. And with the COVID-19 pandemic, it blossomed into the man eating plant from Little Shop of Horrors. Now, starting last year, public health technocrats, with, of course, the assistance of opportunistic politicians, seized control over huge parts of our lives. Mass house arrests without charge or trial, mask mandates, vaccine mandates and passport schemes, etc. And then they proceeded to vacillate and scrap among themselves over the divvying up of their new power as more than 600,000 Americans died and the economy tanked. Now to add insult to injury, the parts of the country where the experts enjoyed less deference seem to have fared no worse and in some cases better than areas where politicians slavishly and without question enforced every technocratic edict. So his point is technocracy finally got its big shot at proving itself and failed miserably. Why? Because public health technocracy isn't about the health of the public. It's about policy, which is about politics, which is about power. That is possibly the best explanation I have seen in months. Yeah, they really, they don't care about your health. They care about your compliance. And Thomas L. Knapp is saying the technocrats exercise their power abusively and ineffectually to boot. So it's time to take that power away. So what does that look like? Taking that power away. I mean, we're learning at some cost that uh, the Constitution itself is not enough to keep our elected representatives from abusing the power with which we've temporarily entrusted them. Well, Judge Andrew Napolitano points out when the Constitution fails us, that doesn't mean we're out of options. Well, it failed. I guess we just have to bow our heads and submit. No, he says that's the time to nullify government interference with our personal autonomy. 
Here's how he puts it. He says, I've been writing for years asking if we still have the U.S. Constitution. Now, the issues come into sharper focus in the past 18 months as mayors and governors have created dictatorial powers and executed those powers to interfere with personal autonomy in America. And they've done this in utter disregard for freedoms protected by the Constitution they have sworn to uphold by asserting that public health trumps personal liberty. So here's the backstory. Judge Napolitano says government is essentially the negation of freedom. If the values underlying the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, maximum personal liberty and minimal government are to be taken seriously, then we all know that government has gone so far astray as to make it unrecognizable to the revolutionaries who fought the British and the founders and framers who wrote and ratified the Constitution and its first ten amendments. He says those underlying values are generally articulated in the first eight amendments which restrain the government from interfering in personal liberty. The Ninth Amendment codifies that our rights are too numerous to list, and thus it requires the government to respect the natural unenumerated rights of all persons, in addition to those rights specifically enumerated. And then the Tenth Amendment reflects the ratifier's public understanding that the Constitution is a compact, voluntarily entered into by sovereign states, and that when they entered, they only surrendered to the federal government those powers enumerated in the Constitution, and thus they retained the powers not surrendered. Now, all of this was the theoretical basis and public understanding of the American experiment in the 1780s and 1790s, And, of course, not all agreed with this. Many classical liberals opposed the ratification of the Constitution for fear that a new central government would control economic activities with its own bank, fight needless wars, invalidate state sovereignty, and curtail civil liberties. As you've probably observed, their fears are now reality. Judge Napolitano reminds us the first serious federal attack on personal liberty came in the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798, which criminalized criticisms of the federal government and the administration of President John Adams. The same generation, in some cases the same human beings that had written the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, did that just a mere seven years later. Now, in response to the Alien and Sedition Acts, The two most prominent thinkers in America, Thomas Jefferson, who had written the Declaration of Independence, and James Madison, who was the scrivener of the Constitution and the author of the Bill of Rights, secretly authored the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions. These manifestations of the compact theory of the Constitution were enacted into law by Virginia and Kentucky legislatures. They declared the Alien and Sedition Acts unconstitutional in their states. This is probably the first example of nullification that you're going to find in American government history. Now, I've got to pump the brakes here because we are up against the break, but I will include a link to this article from Judge Napolitano in today's show notes, which you can examine for yourself at thebrianhydeshow.com. Dead serious here. There's a lot of information there. If you are serious about learning more about these topics, actually owning your worldview on them, don't just scratch the surface. Dig deep. There's a lot to learn here. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. If you are looking for a home, not just in St. George, but actually throughout the state of Utah, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is who I would recommend to help you get that financing squared away so that when the time comes, you find the home that you're looking for, you're not dilly-dallying around and trying to, you know, get your financing in order. It's there. You're done. You got to be able to be squared away right now. Heather has decades of experience to make that happen for you. Of course, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. There's a link to her email in my show notes at the com, or you can call 435-703-4522. So I'm sharing this article here from Judge Andrew Napolitano. When the Constitution fails us, and he reminds us that, you know, it, the, the attacks on the Constitution started before the ink was even dry. And the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were passed in 1798, criminalizing criticisms of the federal government, and in particular the administration of President John Adams, that sparked some pretty strong response from a couple of different states, in particular Virginia and Kentucky. And it was none other than Thomas Jefferson and James Madison who wrote the uh, Kentucky and Virginia or the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions in which they declared the Alien and Sedition Acts unconstitutional in their states. Now these resolutions, says Judge Napolitano, reflected the views of many ratifiers of the Constitution that the states that formed the federal government retained the power to correct it. Stated differently, These state statutes declared the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were blatant violations of the freedom of speech, to be null and void in Virginia and Kentucky. The underlying value here is that because the Constitution is a voluntary compact, those states that formed it and joined it voluntarily have the sovereign power to leave it. Abraham Lincoln, sit back down. We'll get to you in a minute. Sorry. Nullification and secession as ideas were cast aside by the Supreme Court and the outcome of the war between the states. But the defeat of an idea politically, legally, or even militarily cannot always bury the idea permanently. In fact, when an idea's time has come, nothing can stop it. So what Judge Napolitano is pointing out here is Jefferson and Madison believed the Constitution protects the right to leave the government whenever it interferes with or fails to protect fundamental liberties. The very idea of secession terrifies governments, whether it be the states or the feds, because if successful, it diminishes government power and income. Right? It's a vote of no confidence. It's a withdrawal of consent. And then he asks the question, has the Constitution failed us? Now, there are two approaches to this question. There's a formal and functional approach. Formally, the Constitution is still the supreme law of the land and enjoys vitality. Formally, the government the Constitution established persists in America, but functionally, as an instrument of restraint, the Constitution is an abysmal failure. The feds regulate, tax, coerce, steal, and kill. They bully the states as they see fit. He says every day, 
some government official who's taken an oath to uphold the Constitution violates it with impunity. None of these violations, short of the war between the states, has been more public, affected more people, and produced more harm than the executive orders issued by mayors and governors in the name of public health. Even the states caved, as very few tried to protect the liberties that the Constitution guarantees. Now, his point is that it will soon get worse. As the Biden administration grows more fearful of its inability to control the latest strains of COVID-19, it will begin to use coercive means to compel mask-wearing and vaccine administration. These so-called health measures are essentially experiments that, when administered coercively by the government, violate the letter, values, and lessons of Nuremberg. And so Judge Napolitano asks, if, if vaccines work, why do we need masks? If masks work, why do we need vaccines? If I'm a free person, why do I need the government telling me how to be healthy? If only the legislative branch of government can write laws, why do we allow mayors and governors and centers for disease control and prevention to do so? If the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, how can government attack the rights the Constitution protects? If freedom is our birthright, what has become of it? So here's the remedy that he offers. And for some people, this may be, you know, a little cause for concern. I agree with him, though. He says the time has come to nullify government interferences with personal autonomy by disregarding them and to threaten seriously to leave and ignore the governments that hate our freedoms. He says, if we don't do this, make way for voluntary servitude. I want to unpack that just a little bit. Because this brings us to the concept of consent. And that means that there are a lot of people out there who are making rules. This is true at a number of different levels of our lives, okay? There, There are federal rules, there are state, there are local rules. But at some point, you have the ultimate say-so. You are the one who decides whether you consent to obey that rule or not. Now, I'm going to make an assumption here. Excuse me. I'll assume that I'm speaking to a decent human being. You don't mind if I regard you. I'm assuming that you're, you're decency. That's probably the, you know, the next step after assuming your gender. But, hey. I assume you're a decent human being. In other words, you understand that you don't have the right to go out there and interfere with other people's rights. You don't have the right to damage them, to aggress against them, to damage their property or take things that are not yours. So when I talk about nullification, withdrawing consent, refusing to play along, that's going to sound really subversive to some people. Oh, you just think you're a law unto yourself. You're just into anarchy and you are just going to do anything you want to do. But I want to point out that the the term anarchy, I think, is sometimes used as a bludgeon to scare people. Well, you know, anarchy is a pretty bad thing. You know, that's 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 just basically every man for himself. That's the law of the jungle. Not so. And if you break down the roots of the word anarchy... And without, I believe, Arca, Arcas is, is referring to ruler. It just simply means you are a person who does not need to be 
ruled. That doesn't mean that rules don't exist. That doesn't mean that spontaneous order cannot exist. It just means you don't need that top-down direction. But the problem is most of us have grown up believing, and I believe this this uh, conditioning process starts about age five. You can draw your own conclusions from what I'm implying here. We're taught to believe that we're broken. We're not good enough. I mean, it, it starts with, you know, if you have anything to say, you raise your hand. If you, uh, you know, need to, to use the bathroom, raise your hand and indicate by the finger whether it's a one or a two. I mean... This is what we train kids to do. Got to wait for permission. Somebody who is in authority will tell you when it's okay to stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. And it sticks with us as adults. Look at the late night TV ads. If you're ever up late, I know a lot of people struggle with insomnia. How many of those ads start from the premise that, hey, you're broken. You're not good enough. Well, I want to counter that message. And I know it sounds subversive to counter it with, uh, so you're telling me that uh, I should secede personally then? But that's exactly what I'm telling you. If government, at whatever level, is acting against your best interests, you can withdraw your permission. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to get away with doing anything that you want. You know, so go ahead and build that amusement park on your back 40. Hey, you know, they'll find ways to shut you down. People in power are pretty jealous about guarding that. But the important thing is the mindset that there are limits to their power. There are limits to what you will go along with. And once you have committed to the, to the idea that you have autonomy, you have the ability to say no when something is not in your best interest, all you have to do is step back and withdraw your support. And watch them collapse, as uh, Etienne Delaboite said, like the Colossus of old. You don't have to go out there and fight in the streets. Sorry, but that's for losers. Just know when and where to withdraw your support. And have the courage to stick with it. And know you're not alone. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for joining us today. This is where we revel in wrong think. And it's kind of a fun thing to do. You know, the whole owning of your own worldview, not being dependent on somebody to spoon feed you the facts of what's happening today. Now, I always, uh, I always try to bring the best information I can to the table, and, and not with the intent of making you angry or making you afraid, but just of, of helping you understand there is some great information out there if you are looking to stand on your own feet and, and not be dependent on somebody else to make sense of it all for you. You have definitely found the right place. And, and as an added bonus, 
I also publish show notes with every episode of the show that I do so that you can follow up on the different guests that I have, the different uh, topics that come up, the different articles that I share with you. I want you to check those things out for yourself. I want you to become so smart and so self-actuated that you don't need me. In fact, I take it as a big compliment. Not because I don't love your company. I do love your company. But the idea here is you don't, you don't need to be following me. You need to be leading and helping other people become leaders. Yes, in the, the words of Alan Stevo, this is, this is a message for lions. I'm through trying to convince sheep that, you know, you should think about things differently. I'm reaching out to a much smaller audience. I'm reaching out to the lions, but you're one of them. And I appreciate you being a part of our audience today. The show is brought to you in part by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org. Want to talk about an education for our time? That's the place where you can get it. Also by LifesavingFood.com and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So the incredible real estate boom taking place throughout the Intermountain West has made it very difficult for people to find an affordable home or in some cases to even find a rental at any price. That was my experience here a couple of months ago when my family and I moved. I I can't believe it. It's been three months since we undertook our move. And if, if you put it out on paper, it made absolutely no sense for us to pack up from where we were, you know, comfortable living along the Wasatch Front uh, just south of Salt Lake City and moving to southern Idaho where the, the real estate market uh, to, to say it's crazy is, is a huge understatement. It's like saying, yes, it can be chilly in the Arctic certain times of year. And one of the big warnings that people told us was, well, are you looking to buy? And I mean, I was looking, my wife and I both were looking at uh, the, the different uh, real estate ads. And it's, it's a little bit discouraging. And I'm not trying to disparage anybody's house here, but, you know, when a 50-year-old home in press board estates is going for $350,000. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty inflated market. That's a big bubble. I don't want to be one of those buying at the top of the market and, you know, spending the next 30 years trying to pay off something that's grossly overinflated and upside down. But finding rentals, believe it or not, was even harder. And that was the number one warning that we got was, so are you guys going to buy or are you guys going to rent? Well, we thought we would rent for a little while till the market settles down or the bubble pops, whatever comes first. And every time I would tell somebody that, the, the reaction was always, ooh. <laughs> Which I was like, oh, man, now, oh, that feeling in the pit of my stomach of uh, what, are, what are we getting into? And it was true, finding rentals, Super, super tough. There are people begging, please, anybody, rent us someplace. We're looking for somewhere to live. You know, it's 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 hard for people. People want to accept a job somewhere. They've got a great opportunity. They can't find somewhere to live. Crazy stuff. Now, by a miracle, and I, I sincerely mean, like, I feel like God intervened. We were able to find a beautiful little rental that that more than fits our needs, more than fits what we need. It is it is just so cool. But I also remind myself it could be worse. In fact, I was just reading an article from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. This blew my mind. 
why many in Sweden have to wait a decade or longer just to land an apartment. He says, Oscar Stark recently was warming up leftover vegetarian pasta in his flat, which is a red brick 1960s tower outside Stockholm. Now, reheated veggie pasta isn't exactly a gourmet meal, but it's all the 20-year-old Swede said he can afford because the majority of his income is spent subletting the place, even though the 11,000 kronor a month flat, which is about $1,260, was the cheapest he could find. Stark, a marketing consultant recently interviewed by the BBC for an article on rent control in Sweden, said, I struggle to make it work, but I'm not giving up. I don't really have a choice, but of course, I'm not satisfied. Now, John Miltimore says, Stockholm is just one of many Swedish cities struggling with a housing shortage. And it's not just that the prices are too high. Wait times for flats are also stunningly long. So in Stockholm, for example, the average waiting time for a typical property is about nine years, according to the BBC. That's nearly twice what it was a decade ago. Now, nine years sounds like a long time, but wait time in Stockholm's most attractive neighborhoods can be double that. Maria Grigorenko, 29-year-old brand manager who moved to Stockholm from Russia, recently landed an apartment after a nine-year wait. She describes herself as lucky. And for younger Swedes in particular, the housing situation is a real problem. And it stems from Sweden's decades-long embrace of rent control policies that stretch all the way back to World War II. All the country's rental units, whether public or private, are subject to rent control in Sweden. That's what The Economist reported back in June, making everyone's rent a matter of government policy. Now, as a result, Sweden doesn't have the housing market that would be recognizable to Americans. As the BBC noted, citizens essentially get in line to purchase what Swedes call a first-hand accommodation contract through the local government. Now, the good news is that citizens who land one of these highly prized contracts have them for life. But the bad news is there simply aren't enough of them. And the result is a second-hand market that results in people like Oscar Stark subletting properties from others who benefit from a constrained supply of housing. So the rent control measures are designed to prevent landlords from making long-term profits. Hmm, That's according to the BBC. But instead, they've led to market instability and a system that rewards the well-connected at the expense of other less connected citizens. Rent control departments are passed between relatives and friends, which benefits those with existing networks and challenges newcomers to the city. So the housing problems in Sweden have become such a mess that something very rare happened recently where politicians were punished over the bad policy. In fact, in June, Stefan Löfven became the first Swedish prime minister to lose a no-confidence vote. Why? That was over housing policy, according to The Economist. And Politico EU appeared to agree... Charlie Duxbury reports a warning from the Swedish parliament housing market policy should be handled with extreme care. What began as a difference of opinion between Prime Minister Stefan Löfven and his allies in parliament over the way apartment rents are set in Sweden has become a full-blown government crisis. 
Now, Sweden's hardly the only country that's struggling with a housing shortage and, and because of rent control. Many European countries and cities have experienced similar problems back in April. A disastrous rent control law was scrapped in Berlin. But the policy, believe it or not, is actually making a comeback in the U.S. Yet the result of Sweden's rent control policies were quite predictable. The reality is price controls and other government regulations can't fix housing problems. This may be the one issue economists overwhelmingly agree upon. Now, in his book, Basic Economics, economist Thomas Sowell documents the failures of rent control policies all around the world. We're talking from Australia to New York, San Francisco to, yes, Sweden. And John Miltimore says, as I previously noted, decades of research show rent control makes housing shortages worse. Which explains why there's near universal opposition to rent control among economists. Now, i got to hit the brakes here because we are coming up against our own break, but uh, I'll share Thomas Sowell's observation. And I know for those who are struggling to find some place to rent right now, the temptation to reach out to government, please do something. Help us. Make a law. Make a policy. Do something. It's really tempting, but it's also a really bad idea. We'll explain why just the other side of the break Check it out. The article is linked in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Might even show a little bit of love to my sponsors. Drop them a note. Let them know their message is reaching your ears. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So we're talking about rent control, why it's uh, up to a 10-year wait just to get an apartment in Sweden. And before I go one step further, I want to give a quick shout-out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage located in St. George, Utah. If you're one of those people who's moving to the Intermountain West, you're getting that sticker shock when you're looking at the uh, real estate market, realizing it's so competitive right now. You better have your financing in order when you go home shopping. Well, this is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. Decades of experience in the lending industry. She knows what the lenders need. She knows what the borrowers need. Heather's the one you want on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. Her NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. And Heather's office is at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Or you can call 435-703-4522. So John Miltimore's article about how many in Sweden have to wait a decade or longer to land an apartment also includes a quote from economist Thomas Sowell documenting the failure of rent control policies around the world. Why wasn't a single housing unit built in Melbourne in the nine years after World War II? Their answer is because rent control laws had made buildings unprofitable. Why did Washington, D.C. see its available renting housing stock decline from 199,000 to less than 176,000 in the 1970s? 
The answer is because fewer people were willing to rent their homes because of price controls. Why did building permits decline by 90% in Santa Monica, California in 1979 from just a few years earlier? Again, because rent control laws had made the building of new units unprofitable. So the lesson is rent control has effects on housing supply, and those effects are not good. Now, John Miltimer says in some cases, rent control has even resulted in shortages of housing in the absence of scarcity. One example Seoul offers is Sweden, where in the 1950s, the average wait time for a place to live hit 40 months. Even though the Swedes were building more housing per person than any country in the world. As of 1948, there were about 2,400 people on waiting lists for housing in Sweden. But a dozen years later, that waiting list had grown to 10 times as many people, despite a frantic building of more housing, according to Thomas Sowell. And when eventually rent control laws were repealed in Sweden, a housing surplus suddenly developed as rents rose and people curtailed their use of housing as a result. So rent control didn't disappear for long, however, which is why wait times in Sweden are now even longer than they were in the 1950s. So when it comes to rent control, John Miltimer says, no thanks. He says the solution to housing shortages and high housing prices is beautifully simple. It's more housing and a free competitive marketplace. That's it. As Sowell observed, markets create affordable housing, while government intervention in housing markets has historically made housing unaffordable. Study after study, not only here but in other countries, show that the most affordable housing is where there has been the least government interference with the market. Contrary to rhetoric, this is something he wrote in Dismantling America. Now, some cities in the U.S., like Minneapolis, are considering passing rent control laws to cap prices on housing. But John Miltimore says this will only further diminish supply and result in lower quality housing as it discourages investment in housing. Fortunately, after decades of bad policy, many in Sweden are finally waking up to this economic reality. Oscar Stark told the BBC, I really feel like Sweden has actually failed on housing. And John Miltimore affirms he's not wrong. And their prime minister's ouster suggests patience with a dysfunctional housing market is beginning to wear thin in Sweden. And others have taken notice. So for the rest of Europe, the message is clear, writes Politico's Duxbury. Don't underestimate the explosive potential of housing as a political issue. And John Miltimore says, fortunately, Europe's housing issues are a problem sound economics can easily solve. Not a bad idea. By the way, there was another article out there that I found from Edward Snowden. And this one really grabbed me. Because there's plenty of bad news, and some of that news out there might actually be based in fact. Now, this is not me encouraging you, therefore, up your intake of bad news. But Edward Snowden had a very interesting take on bad news, bad data, and the new denialism that threatens to put us into a state of civic paralysis. Let me share a couple of his thoughts here. He says, the bump on your toe is probably cancer. Levels of Arctic sea ice are both decreasing and increasing. And the world is either 6,000 
or 4.5 billion years old. Now, he's saying this tongue-in-cheek, but he says, because you're online, you already know this. Google or Mad Libs, your search engine of choice, is able to vomit up scientific data to support, yes, even confirm, nearly any private theory that you want. And the truth, yes, the truth, truth, is that a lot of that data will be accurate, but a lot of it will not be. And you probably don't have toe cancer, for, for instance. Snowden says, much screen ink has been spilled over the fake news and pseudoscience that are returned to us by our searches. In other words, the information, let's call it that, that are answers that answers our sincere queries in a manner algorithmically aligned with our preferences and our community's preferences. Though for the word preferences, he says you might as well substitute the word biases. Data as filtered by what calls itself the media as opposed to data as filtered by an individual, should be better, but it isn't. Snowden says, after all the statistics on Fox, CNN, and the New York Times, someone Googled them, too. That's what the media has become. Someone Googling for you. And yet, whenever the media presents statistics, it somehow never manages to remind us that statistics are inherently uncertain. The field of statistics is literally the study of uncertainty of possible or probable likelihoods or unlikelihoods, which are 10 out of 10 times presented as the personally applicable percentage chances, the vaguest odds that X or Y will or will not happen to you. Now, for many of us, he says, to read the daily news is to assess our personal risk levels. Yet we rarely recall, and the media never mentions, the true challenge isn't to enumerate the risk, but to live with it. It is stake out the resilient middle ground between denying danger altogether and, say, refusing to wear a mask in a crowded bus or train and finding nothing but danger everywhere and, say, wearing a mask and gloves when alone in the middle of the woods. He says the way we assess risk is inextricable from the way we process fear. And it is one of the many factors that determines our paranoia and susceptibility to conspiracy. He says, anti-vaxxers fear the vaccine, which saves lives, more than the disease, which ends or impairs them. Climate-denying politicians fear the economic consequences of climate adaptation more than the end of the world, which, you know, might have some impact on the portfolio. He says, one of the more interesting and urgent questions for me is how to deal with good research that also happens to be bad news, especially when it comes to covid and changes in our climate. Snowden says coronavirus variants are multiplying. Sea levels and temperatures are rising. Unseasonable storms are more powerful and frequent than before. Unprecedented wildfires are spreading, and unless there are immediate, rapid, and large-scale reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, limiting warming to close to 1.5 degrees Celsius or even 2 degrees Celsius will be beyond reach. Now, if you don't want to hear about this stuff, he says, you have a choice. You can either look at the other side's data that says the opposite or toss your phone into the ocean, which is littering. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article here from Edward Snowden. This is from his Substack, And it's the new denialism. And look, he makes a good point. He, he's picking coronavirus. He's picking climate change. There's a couple of places where you can find data to support your side. But how do you know which to believe and how do you know which to just discard? And he says, you know, there's there's a choice that we have when we look at the, we can look at the other side's data that says the opposite of what we think. We can toss our phone into the ocean if we want. But his point is when we decide that a situation is so bad that there's nothing to be done, we actually end up succumbing to a kind of civic paralysis. I know I'm not the only person who's felt this. And, and Edward Snowden says, an overwhelming concatenation of negativity communicated as constantly unfolding catastrophe leads even the most conspiracy immune into apathy and sometimes willful ignorance. And now here's the baddest news. He says it leads us into apathy and willful ignorance whether or not we believe the science. He says, take, for instance, climate scientist Stephen Chu's nihilistic troika. One, people who accept climate change and think it's caused by humans. Two, people who accept climate change and think it's caused by nature. Three, people who don't accept climate change at all. What do all of these people have have in common? Well, the answer is they can all usually agree on the fact that nothing can be done. So with COVID-19 persisting into 21 and this fall marking the second anniversary of our new lives, the mutant strain of science denialism has become its own pandemic. And that's one that leaves us in denial about our ability to implement change. So it's one thing to deny, you know, a particular political agenda, but it's another thing to deny hope. I think this is one of those instances where we've just got to make up our own minds. And I feel kind of bad. I, I know I went a, I ran afoul of a, a guest that I had here a couple of weeks ago on the issue of climate change. And I'm not saying that she was a hardcore, you know, environmentalist. She's just someone who, who really believes, you know, she works for an environmental organization and, and uh, believes this, this is real. And you know what? She may be right. The disagreement, I think, tends to come down to, though, there, there are those who think, well, you know, climate change is happening and the only way to, to stop it is to give government more power and to tax us more heavily. I'm sure you've heard this. Just give us more power and more money and we will change the climate. I don't believe politicians who say that. I don't believe activists that, that take that approach. And at the same time, I can look around and say, yeah, I think it's reasonable to say there there is uh, some definite climate change going on. There's some weird stuff. The drought here in the American West the fires that we have seen i mean it feels like it feels like winter's coming super early now this i know this is just anecdotal but uh, my aunt was telling me the other day i don't usually feel this way until about november she's one of those people who feels in her bones when the weather is changing so yeah that stuff makes me just a little bit nervous and it makes me kind of wonder okay what's really going on and just for fun I would recommend if you want, if you want an interesting take on why there is climate change. I personally believe it's a cyclical thing. I think it's happening, but it's happening because this is part of the the Earth's this this is part of what it does. It's it's just it's a natural historical cycle, and there's nothing that that can change that. 
If you want a very interesting take on this, there's a YouTube channel that I would recommend. It's called Suspicious Observers. And I don't know how to describe it. I sent a, I sent a link to, uh, to my biological dad, super smart guy. And the only thing I got back from him was, yikes. So <laughs> maybe it's too conspiratorial. I don't know. But I think that there's a reasonable explanation that has to do with the sun and electromagnetic radiation and the, the Earth's electromagnetic field and what the sun is putting out, how it affects us. CMEs, you know, uh, solar flares, solar energy can impact what happens here. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't play into the idea. And if we just give politicians more money, they can change what's going on on the sun, too. I don't think they can. But it does raise a question. When it comes to mixing politics with science, what do you get? Really, it seems like you just get more more politics. Now, I've got an article here from Christopher Lingle. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. It's titled, Climate Science, Seeking Truth or Defending Consensus. Christopher Lingle says, Science, as opposed to pseudoscience, scientific denialism, or conspiracy theories, involves a willingness to inspect data and to be open about, as well as to view, hypotheses and evidence offered to support them with skepticism. Since empirical evidence can be manipulated or even used to disguise ideology or wishful thinking in support of a particular hypothesis, he says it's misleading, even dishonest, to insist that an objective, immutable consensus exists. But we hear that a lot with science, with with climate change, rather. He says, while there are certain facts that are widely accepted, in other words, like there is a global warming trend, the nature of the trend is contested, And there is considerable dispute as to what the cause of the change or warming might be. But then again, he says not long ago, there was scientific consensus consensus rather that there was a long-term cooling trend for the lands of North America. I mean, I remember this as as a kid in grade school, being warned about how if we upset the balance of nature, that's going to bring, you know, the next ice age. Now, Christopher Lingle says clearly claims of a scientific consensus relating to anthropogenic global warming are not without controversy. In a world familiar with cancel culture, it would not be surprising that a dominant view could be contrived by punishing, marginalizing, or excluding dissenting views. He says, for its part, the scientific method generally involves the following sequence. Observe, hypothesize, predict, test, analyze, and revise. But experimental confirmation cannot establish truth in any theory since future testing can render a theory to be untenable. And while predictability is compelling by providing believability based on data, neither science nor any empirical theory reveals what is true per se. So the goal of science is to seek failure, not truth. As it is, scientists can engage in misinformation, including cherry-picking data, sloppy data collection or analysis, unintended areas, uh, errors rather, fraud, meaning false or fabricated data, or good intentions based on cognitive or confirmation bias. Now, as such, 
All theories are tentative and subject to revision if more or better or contrary evidence appears. Being a skeptic is the mark of someone ready to reject ideas they believe lack sufficient evidence and to accept new ideas based on reliable evidence and reproducible results. So rather than applaud conventional scientific wisdom said to support a consensus, he says we should celebrate uncertainty, honesty, and openness that underpin science. Those powerful words, I don't know. Yeah. Indeed, humility and self-criticism of one's own work are as important as communal and institutional critiques. Now, Christopher Lingle says, unfortunately, belief in the truth relating to global warming, in other words, climate change, has induced suggestions for skeptics to be forcibly silenced, even prosecuted for crimes. I think we've even been subjected to a little scolding. How dare you? Meanwhile, insistence on the existence of a scientific consensus concerning the nature and causes of alterations is likely to direct funding and an acceptance of research proposals towards those that promote the dominant view. In fact, to that end, 19 federal agencies received climate change funding of more than $13 billion in 2017. The total spending on climate studies between 1989 and 2009 exceeded $32 billion, not including $79 billion spent for climate change technology research and access and, and uh, foreign aid and tax breaks for green energy. Now, as such, the loss of uh, sinecures and access to largesse would be massive if global warming or climate change were discovered to be less than an existential problem. But Christopher Lingle says it turns out there's so much complexity about the various influences on climate that it's much more difficult than normally assumed. For example, the sun does not provide a constant intensity, nor does the earth rotate around it in a constant orbit. So that solar flaring and wobbling of the earth about its axis contribute to variations in solar heating. See, this is why I'm kind of a fan of suspicious observers. (laughs) Bottom line is... When science is mixed with politics, the result tends to be more politics in its purest and most restrictive form. Got a link to the article in the show notes. You should check it out at thebrianhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to take a moment here to give a shout out to lifesavingfood.com. Yes, we are talking food storage. We're talking dehydrated and freeze-dried food with a 25-year shelf life. And it may seem overwhelming. I know a lot of people when they look at food storage, I mean, especially here in the Intermountain West, the, the dominant culture kind of, you know, leans on, well, you should have a year's supply of food. And a year's supply of food is a daunting task in most people's minds. But if you have already been working on this, if you've done this with any consistency, you know, it doesn't take that long to get a, a really respectable backup supply of food socked away. It just takes a little bit of consistency. And, of course, acting while the prices are good, while the availability is good, while there isn't a panic and demand is unusually high. 
Now, the good news is this is one of those times. Even though things are weird, even though there are a lot of people who are nervous, if you are looking to start or even just fill in the gaps in an existing food storage program, never been a better time. Click on the link that I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. The link is for life-saving food. Take a look around. If you find something that you need, when you make the purchase, use my last name as your coupon code, HYDE, H-Y-D-E. They'll take 10% off your your purchase, and you can enjoy some peace of mind. All right, a couple other items I want to get to in this final segment. Um, One of the most curious aspects of our cultural climate is that we are no longer allowed to consider official or I mean, uh, to consider alternatives, rather, to the official narrative. And a good example of this right now is uh, if you utter the word ivermectin, you're likely to hear people say, oh, horse medicine, that's uh, people are using horse medicine to try to fix something. This is terrible. You know? But that, that current crusade to treat ivermectin as mere horse medicine when it has a proven track record of treating human parasite infections for more than 30 years, I've read, but I haven't confirmed. Was a Nobel Prize awarded for uh, the creator of ivermectin? Just wondering. You don't often hear that kind of stuff with horse medicine, but hey, you know. Well, Michelle Malkin has an excellent article that helps us separate the horse hockey from the truth on ivermectin. And I love that she starts this out by saying, Shh, the information I'm about to share with you is dangerous and subversive. You cannot publish it on social media platforms without risking scary labels and permanent suspensions. She says, you and anyone you discuss this topic with will be called anti-science kooks, conspiracy theorists, or quacks. But she says, so be it. I've been called every pejorative name in the globalist elite's overworn book of ad hominem attacks over the past 30 years. Who cares? Michelle Malkin says the airwaves have been littered the past month with disparaging reports about ivermectin, which the U.S. Food and Drug Administration warns should not be used to treat or prevent COVID-19. You are not a horse. You are not a cow. Seriously, y'all, stop it, the official FDA Twitter account snidely admonished last week. And I love Michelle Malkin's response. Well, you're not a sheep either. So don't be cowed by Big Pharma and their bought-off swamp bureaucrats. Seriously, y'all. These are the performative actors who flipped and flopped on masks and rushed experimental jabs to the market, uh, brazenly denied deadly adverse events, and advocated mix-and-match booster shots as part of the most notorious junk science experiment in human history. So first things first. The government and corporate media's repeated description of ivermectin in headline after headline as a horse dewormer is pure propaganda. Yes, it is used as an antiparasitic for animals. But ivermectin has been used to treat humans for parasitic infections for more than three decades. As Wisconsin critical care specialist Dr. Pierre Corey and his colleagues affiliated with the Memphis VA Medical Center, University of Tennessee, University of Texas Health Science Center, Hackensack School of Medicine, and Eastern Virginia Medical School noted in a recent literature review published in the peer-reviewed medical journal, the American Journal of Therapeutics, quote, Originally introduced as a veterinary drug, ivermectin soon made historic impacts in human health improving the nutrition, general health, and well-being of billions of people worldwide ever since it was first used to treat 
Oh boy. On oncho onchocerciasis. Anyways, river blindness in humans in 1988. <clears throat> it proved ideal in many ways, given that it was highly effective, broad spectrum, safe, well tolerated, and could easily be administered. And although it was used to treat a variety of internal nematode infections, it was most known as the essential mainstay, mainstay rather, of two global disease elimination campaigns that has nearly eliminated the world of two of its most disfiguring and devastating diseases. End quote. Now, Michelle Malkin says that's right. Billions of humans around the world have taken ivermectin approved by the FDA and considered an essential medicine by the World Health Organization under mass distribution programs to eradicate river blindness and other tropical diseases. She says ivermectin has also been shown to inhibit a broad range of viruses in laboratory studies, including HIV, influenza, West Nile virus, and other RNA viruses. She says in 2018, more than 130,000 patients in the U.S. were prescribed the drug. It is a human drug, no matter how many times the mad cows in the media try to fearmonger you into believing otherwise. So should ivermectin be pursued as a treatment or prophylaxis for COVID-19? Well, the COVID-19 control freaks don't even want you to ask the question out loud or debate it on the Internet. But unlike farm animals, you can exercise your free will and search the evidence for yourselves. A study in the peer-reviewed journal Antiviral Research reported ivermectin inhibited the replication of SARS-CoV-2 in vitro and concluded ivermectin is worthy of further consideration as a possible SARS-CoV-2 antiviral. She also points out an analysis published in the peer-reviewed International Journal of Antimicrobial Agents in November of 2020 found that countries with routine mass drug administration of prophylactic chemotherapy, including ivermectin, have a significantly lower incidence of COVID-19. Prophylactic use of, COVID, of, of uh, ivermectin rather against parasitic infections is most common in Africa. And we hence show the reported correlation is highly significant both when compared among African nations as well as in a worldwide context. It is suggested that ivermectin be evaluated for potential off-label prophylactic use in certain cases to help bridge the time until a safe and effective vaccine becomes available. Now remember, that was November of 2020 when they wrote that. She also points out a small pilot, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized clinical trial conducted in Spain and published in The Lancet back in January didn't find statistically significant differences in COVID-19 viral loads, but it did find a marked reduction of self-reported anosmia, hyposmia, a reduction of cough and tendency to lower viral loads and lower antibody titers, which warrants assessment in larger trials. I guess if you uh, have a medical degree, you'll understand a lot of what that said. I did not. A systematic review of ivermectin's antiviral effects published in the peer-reviewed journal Nature found that it could serve as a potential candidate in the treatment of a wide range of viruses, including COVID-19 as well as other types of positive-sense, single-stranded RNA viruses. She points out a study in the peer-reviewed journal CHEST found statistically significant lower mortality rates among hospitalized COVID-19 patients prescribed ivermectin, along with hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, or both, 
compared with patients without ivermectin in Broward County, Florida. Now, she says you can find more related studies on ivermectin and COVID-19 in PubMed, that's the Federal Scientific Database, and you can weigh all the costs and benefits for you and your families. But she says, remember, misinformation simply means information that the powers that be want you to miss. It's your responsibility, first and foremost. I had a friend point this out to me yesterday, and, and, and I realized, man, she's got a point here. A lot of people have outsourced their well-being and their health to the medical system, meaning they'll sit there and they'll eat cheeseburger after cheeseburger and wash it down with two liters of Coca-Cola and then demand to their doctor, do something, save me from this heart disease not realizing that they have the key responsibility in their own well-being. So this includes doing your own research. This means you have got to figure out what is right and what isn't. And I agree with the Michelle Malkin's assessment that most often misinformation or what you're being told is misinformation is information that someone in power would rather you not have because it will decrease their sway over you or their power over you. That sounds like an even better reason to be checking it out. Hey, check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Lots of links in there for your enjoyment and some great sponsors who would love to hear from you. This is The Brian Hyde Show.